Hi, Pastor Rob here from City East Church and MTL Ministries. What you hold is true. Is it really truth? Will what you believe get you through on Judgment Day? Are you keeping to the pattern of sound teaching held out in Scripture? In this series, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, I intend to deliver messages that check the solidness of our Christian foundation so as to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, and we're going to read through to 23. Okay, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. All right, Lord, we just commit this sermon to you. And Lord, I ask that you would help me to reveal some elements of this uh, passage of Scripture, which is going to be of benefit to us, is going to stimulate us and also open up a new understanding of your word that we did not have before this time. So I pray this in your wonderful name, and I pray that you help me to only say what you've co- you've caused me to say by the Holy Spirit. So I hold my tongue if I go to say anything that is not of you. And uh, I also pray that everyone here, will uh, their minds will be open, and their hearts will be open to receive what the Spirit is saying today. And I pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. The book of Ephesians is the high ground of the New Testament. It's... It's probably, you know, if there's a, a mountain of the New Testament, this is right at the top. So we, we've, we've delved into a really powerful book, a very prominent book, and one of my favorite books. The letter was written by Paul as a circular letter designed for all the churches in Asia Minor. And back in those days, the letters that were written were all used and circulated among the churches. So they had, in a sense, New Testament scripture right from the onset. Uh, a lot of those letters we don't have in possession anymore, but these ones were obviously preserved by God and kept to become part of the biblical canon. In the previous section of chapter 1, we studied the mystery of the gospel. In chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, we found that we, were, we are elected by the Father, that God elected us and he chose us before time began. In 1, verse 7 to 10, we were, were redeemed by the Son. So the Son came to earth to correct a problem. We were in a situation. We were destined for destruction in our sin nature. But God sent His Son to correct that problem. And then in 1, uh, verse 11 to 14, we were sealed by the Spirit. So we receive the Holy Spirit, who's the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So we are pos- the Holy Spirit possesses us and he's, he becomes our guarantee 
of our eternal life in Christ. And so that's what we learned from that previous study in Ephesians. Now, from today, we're going to start from verse 15, and it says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul had heard about their faith in Christ and their love for each other. So he said, ever since I heard about your faith. So their faith was reported all over the known world at that time, that these were passionate Christians who loved one another and prayed for one another. Are we known by our love for each other, the brethren? Are we known for our faith in Christ and our prayers that we give up to God for one another? That's a good question. Our primary concern should be for the brethren. Did you know that? According to the Bible, there's many references that to pray for one another, to to pray for the eldership or the leadership of the church. So we're called as a church to be praying and diligently seeking God on each other's behalf. And that should be one of our first and primary things. And the reason is, is because we are all in Christ now. But, you know, there's always the possibility once you're in Christ that you can recant of Christ. And that's what, throughout history, many people have recanted of the faith. They were once believers, then they rejected Christ for some reason or another, or they might have been held, their life might have been in jeopardy, and they rejected Christ. So we've got to make sure that we strengthen one another through prayer and encouragement. When Paul heard about their love and faith, he never stopped thanking God for them. When, when you hear that, you think, you know, Paul was a man of prayer. He never stopped thanking God. He never stopped praying and seeking God. Do we thank God continually and pray because of the faithfulness of Christians in our community? Have you ever thought about that? You know, there's some really good churches in Adelaide. Do we actually thank God for them? Are we that concerned for the body of Christ? Are we that concerned for the kingdom of God that is coming upon earth that we actually thank God for the good things that he's doing in our community and in our community churches? And that's, it's a different way of thinking because a lot of Christians don't think this way. But the, the early church was, that's how they actually did think. In that, what you get from that is we're called to be people of prayer and people of thanksgiving. Is that right? I'd say there would not be many there's not that many Christians today that are people of prayer. You know, it's one of the um, lessening ministries of the church. It's probably one of the weakest ministries of the modern church is prayer. Yet when I read the Bible, you find that all the patriarchs, all, you know, King David and so on, back to Abraham, they're all men of prayer. And you hear of the wonderful women in the Bible, they're all women of prayer, prayer first. And then you go right through the New Testament, the apostles, and they're all men of prayer. I think it was James, they used to call him old camel knees. Because he spent that much time in prayer that his, his knees were calloused. You know, but, and your, your grandmother used to have calloused knees, didn't she, from prayer. She would go into the prayer closet about four or five times a day and beseech God on behalf of the family. All the biographies I've ever read on any man or woman of God Every biography I've ever read, one of the most powerful elements to their ministry was prayer. So prayer is the key, really, to being a powerful Christian. The more time we spend in God's presence in prayer, the more real God becomes. 
And that's why sometimes, you know, if you don't spend, have much prayer in your day, you wonder why at the end of the day you just pick up the Bible and go, oh, yeah, Christianity. Yeah, I forgot all about that. It's very easy. So we've got to spend time in prayer. Now, Ephesians 1.17 says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So the Holy Spirit here is referred to as wisdom. And I'm just going to turn there. I don't expect you guys to, if, unless you can do it really quick. Go to Isaiah 11, 2. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. This is talking about Jesus back here in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord will, uh, well, I'll go back a bit further. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From the roots, of a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. It's talking about Jesus, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And we'll go to the other one. So that's talking about the spirit of wisdom that came upon Jesus. Now, Paul is saying here, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom. So he's talking, he's, he's in line with Old Testament there. He's not just saying this new way of referring to the spirit as a spirit of wisdom. The spirit of wisdom was talked about right back in the Old Testament. And then if we go to and a spirit of revelation, well, we'll just shoot forward to 1 Corinthians 2.10. And it says, But God has revealed it to us by his spirit, and the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So the spirit spends his time searching the deep things of God. Therefore, if you're in, in contact with the spirit, and if you're, Spending time with the Spirit and communion with the Holy Spirit, you will receive a spirit of revelation because the Spirit is searching out the deep things of God. And any deep thing of God is a revelation. Paul here reveals that for us to get to know the Father better, that he needs to give us wisdom and revelation in relation to him. So for us to get to know God better, to get to know Jesus better and understand the scriptures better, we must have a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation. And that's why Paul prays for that. So let's pray for this now upon us and the church of Christ. So Lord, I just ask you right now that you would give each and every one of us here a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation so that we may know you better. We may get to understand you better and grow in the things of God and become mature in the things of God. And Lord, I believe that if we just ask you that you want to give us the things we ask. If we ask for bread, you won't give us a stone. And Lord, we ask also that you would pour out this spirit of wisdom and revelation upon the body of Christ as a whole. Because Lord, the, the body so desperately needs the spirit of wisdom and so desperately needs a revelation of you, Lord, so that if we are all moving and functioning under the spirit of God, that Lord, there will be unity. And so we pray for this in 2012, that this will come upon the body of Christ in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Ephesians 1, verse 18 to 19, and it says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, the word incomparably incomparably is how most people say it, but the correct pronunciation is incomparably, but it doesn't actually, I like saying incomparably because it's 
incomparable. You can't compare the great power that God gives us or gives to those who believe. So here Paul is praying for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, not the eyes of our mind. Did you catch that? So I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And this, I got this, drew this from uh, Chuck Missler. Now this sermon, I sort of was watching a Chuck Missler sermon on Ephesians, and I drew a number of little things from there. So they're scattered throughout my sermon, because there were some powerful points he was making. Romans 10, 9-10 says that if you confess with your heart, uh, with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So when you believe in Christ, you don't believe in Christ here, you believe here. So it's more than an intellectual understanding, even though that helps. You've got to have an intellectual understanding of, of Jesus. But you've also got to know that you know that you know that he exists and he's the truth. So you believe with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, everything that is in you, your, every fibre of your being should resonate a belief in Jesus. So in that Ephesians 1, 18 to 19, where he's praying for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, there was three petitions that he made, and, and Chuck Missler points these out. The first was the hope of his calling. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And then he says also the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So the second point was his inheritance in the saints. Did you know that Jesus sees us as his inheritance? So he sees us as a treasure of incomparable worth, which is Matthew 10.31. He sees us as a heritage, Matthew 25.34, and a people of God's own possession, Titus 2.14 and 1 Peter 2.9. The third point, the three petitions he makes, is that we would understand his incomparably great power. Paul points out what this power is in the following verses. So the verses that come after this point out the power that he wants us to have a revelation of and he wants us to have and walk in. But we'll go back to his inheritance. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It's not the riches of our inheritance. We have an inheritance too. Jesus is our inheritance and the kingdom of God is our inheritance, isn't it? But, you know, we are his inheritance. Chuck Missler points out we have an inheritance in Christ, but do we realize that he has an inheritance in us? We are his inheritance and John 17 repeated, had repeated references to those you have given me. And I'm going to read a couple of those scriptures because it's really powerful to see that Jesus, how Jesus sees us. Therefore, that's why he could say, I have lost none of those that you have given me. Do you remember that? Except the one destined for destruction, which was Judas Iscariot. But he sees all of us. So do you think if, if Jesus owns us, do you think he's pretty jealous and protective over us? And he won't want us to go astray, will he? Or would he? He wouldn't want us to go astray. He would want to keep us in the palm of his hand and keep us close to him and raise us up in the things of God so that we can stay in Christ and never lose our salvation. If you, if you remember, we are his body in Ephesians 1.22. We're called the body of Christ. So that's how close we are to Jesus. We are his building, Ephesians 2.19-22. We are his bride. How protective is a, is a groom over his bride? 
Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, and we are joint heirs with Christ. We are not only his bride, but we are joint heirs. So we're partners in what uh, God wants to give Jesus. Who's read the book of John? Yeah? In the book of John, in, in chapter 17, it goes through a, a long prayer that Jesus makes um, for those in the body of Christ, those at the time and, and those that are to come. And he also prays for himself in there as well. In there, in John 17, 2, it says, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And he's talking about himself as a third person as he talks to the Father. All those you have given him, meaning Christ. John 17, 6, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. You gave them me. So we belong to Jesus. John 17, 9, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. We are his inheritance. John 17, 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Okay, Ephesians 1, 19b to 20 says that power is like the working of his mighty strength. We're talking about the power, the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. And the word power comes from the Greek word dynamios, from which we derive the word dynamite. And the word working, that power, the power is like the working of his mighty strength, comes from the Greek word energian which means working, action, productive work. Um, it's actually confined to superhuman activity. Superhuman activity. So it's activity that can only be accomplished by God's power. We can't raise the dead. Only God can do that. So if the dead are raised uh, by a person, it's because of superhuman activity. And that's the power, the donamios, which he gives us to have that power for us who believe. Now, if we don't believe, we don't have that power, do we? So again, the need to pray and seek God and, and get closer to Him. Energian in Greek means energy. Oh yeah, energy of dynamite. I wrote it at the top the heading. That's it. Energy of dynamite. <laughs> I just didn't point it out in the verse. Power to raise Christ. Ephesians 1, 19b to 20 says that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So that power is not only resurrection power, but it's the power to place Jesus above all things and seat him at the right hand of God and to bring him up from the grave. And that is the power that God has given us as well. That super natural power. Philippians 3.10, and this is why Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the power that comes, the dynamios that comes from his resurrection. Now, the right hand of God is the place that Jesus was, was ascended to, right straight up to the right hand of God. And in that, it's a place of distinction. It's a place of privilege it's a place of power and it's a place of delight and a place of dominion. These are the places all behind, beside God and all those scriptures there. Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 1.13, Matthew 26.64, Psalm 16.11 and 1 Peter 3.22. I'm reading those out for the benefit of those listening to my podcast. 
Ephesians 1.21 says, Far above all principality and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, and not only in this world, but also in the one which is to come. Now, that's a literal... I, I changed a few words from the King James for that. So it will become a literal translation of the words principality, authority, power, and dominion. The reason I did that is because they're direct uh, words that come from the Greek directly. And I couldn't find a translation that had all those four in that order. There might be one, though, unless you get a literal translation of the Bible. The Greek word for principality is axi, which means from the beginning. So the initial starting point, uh, and therefore is chief and foremost, has the priority because he is ahead of the rest. He's preeminent. So what that's telling us when he's far above this um, Arxi is referring to Jesus being above anything that was ever created from the beginning of all time. I love this little word study of these things. So from the beginning of time, there has never been anything that is above Jesus or Jesus has been placed above all of those. And he always was above them, but after the resurrection in his human form, he's been placed above all that. And the word for authority comes from the Greek word eskousia, which is delegated empowerment, usually in the earthly realm. So what that's talking about is he's above any delegated authority in the sense of government, religious, or any other kind of position on earth. So did you know that Jesus is greater than the President of America? Yes. Did you, you knew that? <laughs> and Julie Gillard? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just thought I'd point that out. And he's also, he's got more authority than our local council. So the word for power, as I said before, is dynamios, which is where we get the word dynamite. And so if Jesus is far above all dynamios, so what that means is he's above all combined power that the universe can generate. So he's above nuclear power, electrical power, atomic power, any kind of energy, all the amassed energy of the universe, Jesus is above that. So you can't take Jesus out with a nuclear warhead. You can't blow up the kingdom of God. You can't destroy it. He's above it. And the reason is, is because he created all that energy. And so as much easy as he created it, he could remove it all. If he wanted to, it says that in him everything consists and coheres and holds together in Jesus. So that means that the whole universe, the only reason it keeps spinning and everything spins in orbit, stays in sync, is because of Jesus. So if Jesus removed his power from that, all the energy of the universe would just fail to exist altogether. It would just stop. And the universe would collapse. That's how far above power he is. The Greek word for dominion, here's a hard one, kirititos. It's like prototokos. Kirititos. Kirititos. I need Greek lessons. Which is divine or angelic lordship. It is usually used with reference to a celestial hierarchy. So in this, Jesus is above every celestial being in the heavens. There is not an angel in heaven who will not bow to Jesus Christ. There is not a power, a, 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 an existence that won't bow to Jesus. So he's above all of those. And I think seeing the Greek in relation to that gives us a better understanding of just what Paul's talking about when he said how far above Jesus is to everything that is. So Ephesians 1, 22 to 23 says, And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And I use the King James for that because I liked how it said all in all. 
Um, it's an important term. Hebrews 2.8 says, He put everything under his feet, and in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. So what that's telling us is everything is under Jesus. Like Jesus is ascended to the Father. He's there. He's at the top. And everything still carries on the way it was and is, is just keeps on going. But he's over everything. But not everything is subject to him, is it? You can't say the inhabitants of this earth are his subjects. Some of them are, right? There's a, a minority of the earth are subject to Jesus, but the bulk of the earth are subject to the world or subject to Satan. So we are yet to see Jesus claim his inheritance and come back and then make cause everything that is to be subject to him. And not in the way that man try to do it, through communism. Because that's the essence of communism, is trying to be, is to rule with an iron fist in a sense. But Jesus is coming back to rule with love, but true love, perfect love. A love that no man has yet come into full understanding of. At present, not everything is subject to Jesus, even though he holds the keys to both death and Hades. But the thing is, is if we die in Christ, we go straight to be with Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So in that sense, those that are subject to him here receive eternal life and will go straight to him because he controls everything. He's above everything. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four to 28 says, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, and he has to put it down. Did you see that? When he puts down all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, when all things are subdued, under him, meaning controlled by him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him who put all things under him. So what they're saying is the Son shall be subject to him, which is the Father, who put everything under his feet. Because remember it said the Father placed everything under the feet of Jesus. So at that time, Jesus will be subject to the Father, even though he is now anyway. And that at that time, God may be all in all. And what I get from that is just that if everyone is subject to him on earth, God is all and in all. And anyone that is not subject to him is destroyed and cast out of the kingdom. And only those that are subject to him are there. And that's why we would, he, we would, God will be all and in all that are existing on the earth. So just make sure that you're in that place and you don't want to be discarded with those that aren't subject to him. Make sure you are subject to him. So this chapter ends by giving us understanding that all things are under Christ and he is on the throne of God with all things under his feet. But yet awaits a time when the world will be subject to him. But the Son will be subject to no one but to the Father and God will be all in all. So he awaits a time when the world will become subject to him. So is that good? Yeah. Everyone receive something from that? So let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I just pray that... Uh, what was just spoken may uh, reach all of our hearts 
and also the hearts of those that are listening on the internet. And I pray that, Lord, your kingdom come. We pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven now. And we pray for a world that will be subject to you. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, cause more people to come to be your subjects now and not when you have to come to uh, crush those that are your enemies. So, Lord, we pray for an increased favour of your name on this planet. We pray that your name will be highly esteemed on this planet before you come, not after, not just after, I should say. But, Lord, we pray that now people will come to know you. Now people will sub be subjects to you. Now people will give their lives over to you and uh, turn and serve you with all their heart. And uh, we believe that it's so possible for you to revive lost humanity. As, you, as that famous song says, I was once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I pray for the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lost to be found. And I pray this in our families. I pray this in our extended friends and families. I pray this in our city, for our city. I pray it for our country. And I pray it for the world that you can do something so wonderful by the power of the Holy Spirit that no man will be able to deny that you are behind it all. And we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen.